This is Guns and Butter. The classical economists divided almost the entire economy into productive versus unproductive labor, into wealth and overhead, into real income and costs. Uh, this uh, threatened the vested interests with taxing away their free lunch. And uh, so you have an anti-classical reaction that is epitomized by the Chicago School of uh, right-wing anti-government, uh, anti-tax uh, people, whose leader, Milton Friedman, said there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, classical economics was all about the free lunch. That's Ricardian rent theory. That's the whole theory of economic rent. And uh, the uh, role of modern economic theory, or I should call it postmodern economic theory and uh, statistics, is to pretend that uh, the banks and the landlords and monopolies actually earn their money instead of extracting it from the economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Road to Serfdom. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Superimperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order. On today's program, we discuss his newest book in progress, The Fictitious Economy, How Finance is Destroying Industrial Capitalism and Paving a New Road to Serfdom. We examine what is meant by the term fictitious as the concept is applied to aspects of today's economy, including real estate and housing, corporate junk bonds, pension plans, costs, capital, statistics, theories, and ideologies. We take a look at the role of war and the demise of the dollar, the bubble economy, and what could unfold in the future. Dr. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you, Bonnie. Your new book, The Fictitious Economy, How Finance is Destroying Industrial Capitalism and Paving a New Road to Serfdom, details many fictitious aspects of the economy today. Fictitious incomes, costs, capital, savings, statistics, theories, and ideologies. What do you mean by fictitious? Uh, something that's unreal, something just pretend, for instance, pretended earnings of companies uh, that really aren't earned, or pretended uh, values for mortgages that were given by uh, Wall Street banks and their affiliates uh, when there's no underlying value there, or fictitious costs. Uh, most uh, economic theory today justifies fictitious costs. For instance, the Federal Reserve has a method of assessing land values that uh, almost seems negative in some years because it uh, treats uh, real estate as uh, having buildings that steadily rise in value as their reproduction costs grow, uh, leaving land as a residual, which uh, uh, understates the real value of land and overstates the value of buildings. Uh, The 
tax code is fictitious because uh, real estate owners have been permitted for the last uh, half century to pretend that the uh, buildings are losing value very rapidly, and so they can take off enough for building depreciation so that they don't have to pay any income tax at all. Uh, as it works out. Uh, the fact is buildings don't lose value. They're uh, maintained with uh, normal maintenance and repairs. And if landlords don't do this, then uh, either they're brought to court for violating the residential uh, building laws or uh, they break the commercial lease. Uh, so right down to the seemingly empirical statistics and theory, uh, the whole economy is based on a kind of parallel universe world, a what-if world of assumptions that is designed to show that the, the wealthy people don't have any income at all. In fact, if you're wealthy in today's economy, you don't make any money uh, because it's all a cost. Uh, corporations don't seem to make money uh, because they seem to uh, have everything as an expense. For instance, uh, interest payments are the largest item that the Internal Revenue Service permits corporations to take off as an expense of doing business. And it's not an expense of doing business at all. It's uh, what outside buyers and corporate raiders have uh, paid their junk bondholders in order to buy out the company. And instead of doing business, they're carving it up, closing it down, downsizing, cutting off uh, long-term uh, research and development and other projects, and uh, are doing just the opposite of uh, uh, what is needed for an industrial economy. And that's why uh, the book deals primarily uh, with how uh, the financial sector is not part of the economy at all, nor is the property sector part of the economy. It's completely separate from the production and, and consumption process. It's more in the character of a parasite than actual producer of goods and services. Now, I should say that I'm in the process of writing the book. It's not going to be out for another year. Uh, I only sent you an indication of uh, what I'm writing now. Uh, so what we're talking about is not a book that people can go out and buy. It's a uh, work in progress, and I'm presenting part of it at a, um, a meeting at the University of Kansas City next weekend where I teach their annual post-Keynesian heterodox economic meeting. Well, to follow up on what you've just said, Dr. Hudson, in your book that you're working on, you say the economy today is really two economies, a productive industrial one that produces the needs of society and a financial superstructure, sometimes called the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, that is siphoning income away from workers and industrial capital and working to their detriment by loading them down with ever-increasing debt. Could you explain this a little further? Well, the national income and product accounts treat uh, every... Uh, everyone who earns an income is producing a service. So if you're taking money out of an ATM machine and I hold a gun and say your money or your life, I'm giving you the service of your life and you're giving me the money you've taken out. Uh, this is the opposite of what classical economics is all about. Uh, about a century ago, when the classical economists, uh, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and the reform uh, era tried to say, look, there's some income that is not earned. 
Uh, rent is not earned. It's an excess price. Interest is not earned. It's a monopoly price. Monopoly profits aren't earned. They're extortionate. Uh, all this was viewed as something that uh, government regulators should get rid of, either by not permitting it in price, or the monopolies uh, would be held in the public domain, or the land itself would be either nationalized or taxed. Uh, the classical economists divided almost the entire economy into productive versus unproductive labor, into wealth and overhead, into real income and costs. Uh, this uh, threatened the vested interests with taxing away their free lunch. And uh, so you have an anti-classical reaction that is epitomized by the Chicago School of uh, right-wing anti-government, uh, anti-tax uh, people, whose leader, Milton Friedman, said there's no such thing as a free lunch. Well, classical economics was all about the free lunch. That's Ricardian rent theory. That's the whole theory of economic rent. And uh, the uh, role of modern economic theory, or I should call it postmodern economic theory and uh, statistics, is to pretend that uh, the banks and the landlords and monopolies actually earn their money instead of extracting it from the economy. Now, your book is really an anecdote to the dominant Chicago school of free marketeers. What is the meaning of free market today, as understood on Wall Street, where the it's, Chicago school... It's exactly school the opposite of what uh, Adam Smith and Ricardo and the classical uh, economists defined as a free market. Uh, classical economics defined a free market as a market free of overhead charges, free of unnecessary charges of production, free of watered stock. Uh, today, a free market means that uh, predators are free to extort any price they want from the public. They are free to deregulate, free to lie to consumers, free to exploit, uh, free to, to load any company that they want down with debt, and basically lead to a world of uh, debt peonage. So that what they call the road to serfdom of government is actually the road to debt peonage that they're leading down. So the whole concept of freedom has been turned upside down by the Chicago School and by the Bush administration. Well, why is today's understanding so different? Because uh, hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent to uh, mislead people and to uh, endow business schools uh, and universities to stop teaching the history of economic thought, to stop teaching uh, the classical economists, and essentially to brainwash students so that uh, students who have a sense of realism simply drop out of the field of economics and go into some other field. You identify a huge generalized bubble economy that has developed through massive debt increases in several areas. Could you go into how the bubble is being inflated in some major areas of the economy? All bubbles are inflated by credit. Uh, and the Federal Reserve, under Alan Greenspan, uh, created a huge amount of credit uh, that would be lent out to almost anybody uh, for any purpose. So the, uh, a bubble economy is when uh, banks and other creditors will lend to uh, borrowers with no visible means of repaying the loan. In fact, a bubble economy occurs when uh, banks will make loans uh, to cover the interest charge. Uh, they'll make loans for properties that don't earn enough uh, to pay the interest, that don't earn enough to amortize the debt, but can only pay the banks by borrowing the money 
adding the uh, new loan onto the existing balance and essentially uh, let the loan grow exponentially by compound interest. Uh, and that's impossible to maintain over time because no economy can grow exponentially over time, and so the bubble bursts. Now, could you talk about corporate junk bonds as part of this bubble? And also, could you uh, talk a little bit about the elimination of defined benefit pension plans? Okay, there are two separate topics, but they are related. Uh, junk bonds came in after 1980. Uh, around 1980, uh, the Carter and Volcker inflation uh, had pushed interest rates up to 20%. Uh, there were a lot of books at that time in the late 70s talking about how uh, this spelled uh, doom for the economy uh, because they, they couldn't see how the economy could run up any more debt than it was. Uh, but lo and behold, here came Drexel Burnham and its uh, legal firm, Skadden Arps, and uh, they essentially declared uh, they were a group of uh, essentially gangsters. And they said, uh, we have a way of uh, getting back at uh, of just taking over companies. We're going to borrow the money buy out the stockholders, and uh, instead of companies uh, paying dividends on their stock as in the past, uh, which they have to pay after they uh, pay taxes, uh, they can pay twice as much in interest. In 1980, the tax rate was 50%. So if you had a company uh, earning $2 million uh, a year, say, it could uh, pay a $1 million in taxes and a $1 million in dividends. Uh, but once uh, the junk bond people took it over, the company could now pay $2 million in interest, so it could pay twice as much to the debt holders. The banks had lobbied the government to permit uh, interest to be charged as a tax-deductible expense, so essentially the taxpayers were subsidizing uh, the takeover of uh, industry at very high interest charges, so high that uh, companies had to cut back their investment cut back their employment and downsize uh, in order to pay the people who'd taken over. Uh, there, there were a lot of lawsuits about this, but the courts uh, declared that all of this was uh, basically legal. Now, the companies were uh, in such financial stress having to pay the bondholders so much money that uh, they then uh, were facing bankruptcy. So they went to the workers, as General Motors did a, a year ago, and one company after another has gone to their labor force and said, look, we're going to go bankrupt. And if we go bankrupt, we're going to wipe out your whole pension fund because the law says you're at the end of the line. The basic rule of American law is the rich get paid first, the uh, reg uh, normal people get paid last. The richer you are, you're at the head of the line. Uh, the, the poorer you are, you're at the back of the line. So the corporation said, we owe so much money to our bondholders uh, and to, to the bankers that have lent us the money that there's not enough money to pay them and to pay you workers. So uh, the labor union said, well, wait a minute. We agreed to lower uh, current wages in order for you to pay us pensions later. And uh, the bosses said, well, uh, we don't care about that. Uh, the law's on our side. We've bought the courts. We've bought Congress. Our lobbyists uh, uh, give uh, congressmen and the lawmakers a lot more money than you do, so you lose. And so the result of the junk bond process is to load American industry so much down with debt that there's no money to pay pension. So instead of paying a defined uh, pension uh, as people had expected, they've gone to what they call a defined uh, 
payment program. Now, the word defined remains the same to make people think it's not a change, but the reality is uh, pension plans are like uh, the Roach Motel. You know how much goes in. You don't have any idea what goes out. Uh, the money goes into the company, uh, and it doesn't go out. And these plans have been based essentially on Pinochet's plan uh, imposed at gunpoint in Chile in 1974. Uh, when uh, the Chicago boys went down to Chile, they said, we cannot have free economics without closing down every department in the country that disagrees with this. Every economics department was closed down. Every social science department was closed down. Uh, about 10,000 labor leaders and government people were murdered or driven into exile. That was the precondition for the free market that uh, paved the way for the uh, Reagan-Bush administration policies of essentially uh, having a pension plan so that the workers uh, have their salaries back. Uh, they're called uh, ESOPs, Employee Stock Ownership Plans. Uh, the money is put into uh, the company's stock, uh, as it was for Enron and for Bear Stearns. Uh, the company uh, then lends the money to itself, pays the executives exorbitant salaries, gives them stock options and bonuses, and then says, we're bankrupt, you're wiped out. And about half of the United States ESOP plans have gone bankrupt, uh, and workers are end-run. Uh, President Bush says this is the free market. This is a wonderful uh, breakthrough. It's wealth creation because corporations are now free to keep all the money that the workers have set aside for themselves, and they can pay them out as dividends. Right. And in the old defined benefit pension funds, you knew what you were going to be able to collect when you retired. Yes. But that's not the case anymore. No, that money has been paid out in uh, dividends and uh, interest and uh, uh, executive remuneration. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Road to Serfdom. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Acolytes of the Chicago School claim that there's no such thing as a free lunch, but they don't mean what people usually think they mean. What do they really mean? Uh, They say that everybody earns what they get, so that if you're an executive, let's say you're... uh the countrywide executive who paid himself $125 million last year while the company went bankrupt, he's provided the service of uh, uh, adding wealth. So they say all of the rich people, Donald Trump is worth what he gets, uh, anybody who owns property and inherits it uh, earns what they get, anybody who uh, has a trust fund earns uh, what they get, uh, so that nothing's free, and therefore nothing should be taxed. Because if everybody earns what they get, then the government's just taking it away, and nothing should be regulated because everything is uh, perfectly in balance. Now, a very uh, important component of all of this is tax policy. Could you talk about tax policy? Uh, the ideal of classical economics was to tax away the free lunch. In other words, uh, they said that there are two kinds of taxes. Most people think of taxes as adding to what you, uh, adding to cost. For instance, if you earn wages uh, and you have to pay tax on it, then you have less to spend on consumption and investment. And the break-even price, uh, if, if you're taxed, the, the cost of production goes up. If a company's profits are taxed, uh, that company has to charge enough money to cover uh, the taxes as well as its cost of production. Uh, The classicists uh, said there's an exception to this, and that's monopoly profits and uh, land rent. Uh, For instance, if you tax the land, 
the rental value, you're not going to uh, remove the the land from production because nature supplies it. You're not going to reduce the supply of land if you tax it. What you'll do is collect the rent essentially for the government. And from ancient Babylonia, uh, Greece, Rome, medieval Europe, uh, England after the Norman invasion, almost every country for thousands of years based the tax system on the land rent. Uh, now, the advantage of this is that uh, the government used this rent to finance its uh, operations and uh, infrastructure spending and everything else, and so it didn't have to go into debt. Well, gradually, the vested interests were able to uh, gain enough power that they began to argue that land shouldn't be taxed and monopolies shouldn't be taxed. And so the money that used to be paid as the tax base, the land rent, instead was uh, kept by the private uh, sector and usually put into the financial market. And that forced governments to do one of two things. Either it had to tax uh, income or sales, uh, excise taxes, or it had to borrow. And in effect, it began to borrow from the landlords in the financial sector, precisely the wealthy groups that it used to tax. So today, instead of the government uh, taxing uh, wealth under the progressive tax code that it had from 1913 until the 1970s, uh, it now borrows uh, from the rich and pays them interest on it. Uh, now, untaxing property, if your real estate taxes go down, uh, people have the idea that that's going to make uh, their living cheaper. But it doesn't make it cheaper at all, because if taxes on a property uh, go down, uh, there are going to be bidders who are going to say, well, there's more rent available. I can buy that prop. I can borrow the money from a bank and buy that property and pay the mortgage out of the rental income. And the less tax there is, the more rental income is going to be freed to pay the bankers. Uh, and that's pretty much what's happened since the 1930s. Uh, the lower the tax rate on property, the more money is freed uh, from taxes to pay the bankers. And the result is that the uh, homeowner or the renter has to pay exactly the same uh, price that they'd pay for a home in any case, because uh, home prices and commercial building prices are set by the marketplace. But instead of the rental value going to pay taxes, uh, it goes to pay the banks. Uh, meanwhile, the government, uh, lacking this sort of tax revenue, has shifted away from uh, taxing property and levied heavier and heavier tax sales taxes and taxes on income, so that uh, people are paying twice for what they used to uh, pay once more. The money that they uh, used to pay as taxes now goes to the bank, and they still have to pay the same taxes that they did before. So the tax and uh, debt burden has approximately doubled on most people, making the banks and the financial sector very rich, and uh, the banks and the financial sector have used this money to become the largest political contributors uh, in Washington, and essentially to buy senators like Mr. McCain to uh, rewrite the tax laws in their favor and uh, untax them more and more and shift the taxes on to uh, workers and even on to industry. Yes, I believe in one of our earlier shows, uh, we did talk about uh, real estate taxes and how when the real estate taxes go down, instead of the money going to the government, which would 
uh, invest in infrastructure, etc., the money goes to the banks. Now, how do the banks invest the money? They invest it, they spend it differently than the government would, don't they? Yes, they, uh, banks lend 70% of their money for mortgage credit. Uh, there's a myth in the textbooks that banks lend money to finance industry. No bank lends money to finance industry. They lend against collateral already in place. So the banks will lend against real estate in the form of mortgage loans at 70%. They'll make loans uh, to corporate raiders They'll make loans to brokerage houses to buy uh, uh, stocks that have already been issued. And essentially, they'll uh, lend money to other governments and uh, for derivatives trade and speculation. And these are all things that the government doesn't uh, uh, spend money on. It spends its money on doing what governments do, uh, bombing people, uh, military expending is the best, uh, paying off their political constituencies, uh, also a little bit of welfare, uh, social security and health care, and uh, some infrastructure spending. Now, the banks tend then to invest their money in assets that already exist. They're not really investing in uh, new research and development and uh, new industry. No, capital formation, research and development are financed almost entirely out of retained earnings by corporations. Uh, And to the extent that uh, the banks lend money to outside raiders, to take over these companies, the money that used to be spent on capital formation and long-term research and development has to be spent to pay the banks. And so the effect of bank lending is actually to crowd out uh, direct investment spending. What is the relationship of the stock market to industrial? The stock market's been turned into a vehicle for uh, borrowers to take over industry on credit uh, and essentially uh, strip their assets and close them down. Uh, There's been a huge flow of money out of the stock market as uh, the stock market is available for uh, people, for corporate raiders to borrow the money buy out stocks on credit, and uh, load the companies down with debt. So the stock market has become exactly the opposite of what it used to be uh, in theory. It's not a way of raising money uh, for investment. Uh, It's a way of uh, stripping assets. But now, did the stock market in the past used to function differently? In principle, it did, but it's always been, certainly in this country and England, uh, it's been rife with fraud. It's always been uh, pretty much uh, operators. For instance, in the 1890s, you would have uh, the biggest part of the stock market were the railway stocks. And the insiders would uh, simply issue bonds called watered stocks uh, to themselves and to the politicians who backed them and to their cronies. And uh, they would then say, look at all the bond interest we have to pay. We have to raise the railway rates uh, because we have all of these expenses. Uh, This is what led to the uh, railroad regulations, uh, the Interstate Commerce Commission uh, being created, uh, and to the Antitrust Act being created. So basically, the stock market has always been uh, pretty much... uh, something that raises money only after a company's already in place. So basically, it's uh, venture capitalists uh, who start a company uh, with their own money. Then they cash out by putting the company up for sale on the stock market, mainly to sell to pension funds, uh, who are the main uh, buyers. And once you have a company that has its stock going, essentially, 
uh, if you're a manager of a company, then you think, if I'm only getting paid, say, $25 million a year, that's not fair. I should be paid $100 million a year. So what you do is you give yourself stock options, and uh, you uh, exercise your stock options to uh, essentially give yourself free stocks, and then you have to find somebody to buy it. And the fact that the pension funds and foreigners come into the market means that you sell them to uh, the poor uh, hapless pension funds or to the Saudis or OPEC or whoever else is uh, buying. And then at the end, uh, once you've got your money out, uh, you really don't care what's happened and you let the stocks uh, collapse, uh, which is pretty much what Bear Stearns did, for instance, in uh, uh, its uh, stock operations. Well, now, what about people's pensions, those that still exist? Are they going to be there in your uh, in your view? Some will and some won't. The ones that are most in trouble are actually uh, state and municipal pensions. Uh, these are vastly underfunded. There's simply no money to pay pay these. And uh, the one source that was supposed to pay state municipal pensions for public workers was the real estate tax. But now that property prices are, are falling, the banks say, wait a minute, if, uh, if we have to pay taxes, then the banks will go under, and uh, we already have negative equity. So uh, uh, you're not able to tax us. So one after another, uh, it looks like the state's municipalities are going to default on their pensions. Uh, last year, President Bush uh, said that the Social Security is purely fictitious, that there is no Social Security fund. And for once, he was telling the truth to people. Uh, he said uh, that essentially uh, the FICA withholding that's taken away from workers' paychecks is really just a concealed tax, and it was really just to cut taxes on the rich, and so there isn't any money to pay Social Security. So he would like to stop it right now. Uh, uh, McCain has just come out saying that, too. So essentially they say Social Security's broke, you're not going to get it. And most voters apparently uh, agree with that and uh, want to uh, re-elect the congressmen who have uh, produced a state of affairs. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Road to Serfdom. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is economic globalization really? I mean, isn't it really just an unregulated asset grab that turns over the natural wealth of individual nations to the global financial elite? No, it's very heavily uh, regulated. Uh, the economy is moving towards uh, central planning by the large financial institutions that are coordinated by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. So uh, essentially, the globalization is a centrally planned asset stripping of countries outside of the United States. Countries are to give their economic surplus to the United States as uh, exports, and uh, they are to serve as markets for whatever the United States can produce uh, in excess, mainly uh, uh, agricultural crops and uh, military equipment. So globalization is, is very, very tightly regulated. Why do national governments around the world cooperate with corporate globalization? There are two reasons. Uh, either they're wittingly uh, pro-American or they uh, are run by uh, oligarchies 
who are making money by this process because the uh, essential philosophy of globalization is to strengthen oligarchies, or they're just afraid of disagreeing with uh, the United States and uh, passively go along with it. The assumption underlying all political theory and economic theory is that nations and individuals act in their own self-interest. And obviously, that uh, premise of economic and political theory is not being followed. Uh, they're not acting in their self-interest. Uh, China is, uh, a few other countries are, uh, and the United States is, but it's as if uh, other countries are passively going along with a strategy that uh, is undercutting them, or at least was until uh, Venezuela, Cuba, Brazil, and Argentina began to uh, break away here, and China uh, moved to create the uh, Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization to uh, uh, make an uh, Asian uh, currency block. A very pressing question at this time is the massive food and energy costs worldwide, which are causing misery and protests. Do you think speculation at the commodities future markets is the primary cause of skyrocketing prices, or or is it uh, more a matter of monetary policy, low interest rates, easy credit, and the weak dollar? Well, neither. Uh, well, speculation is a function of monetary policies and deregulation, so certainly speculation has played some role. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are many other factors that have been pushing up uh, oil prices. The main factor is the decline in the dollar. Uh, Americans have seen oil prices go up, uh, but they're not going up uh, for the Europeans so much. Uh, they're not going up for uh, countries that have hard currencies. Uh, the OPEC countries have said the oil prices are going up for two reasons. Number one, the dollar is going down and we're pricing our oil in euros. So as the dollar depreciates uh, against the euro, you're going to have to pay more and more dollars in order to give us exactly the same price in hard currency we're getting before. Secondly, the dollar is going down because of the war in Iraq. And OPEC says, uh, we don't want to encourage you to have a thriving economy while you're attacking us all. So uh, we're not going to support the war in Iraq. We're going to raise the price. And third, they say that as the dollar goes down, we've lost so much money on the dollar uh, reserves that we've held in past years that we have to make it up by charging more. So essentially, this is a response to uh, the U.S. Uh, war in Iraq and to the free, free ride. And that means that the prices will continue to go up until the United States uh, cures the balance of payments, mainly by cutting back its military uh, spending and reindustrializing the economy. Well, you know, I had thought that the rise in oil prices, uh, gasoline prices, for instance, for Americans, did have to do with the demise of the dollar. And yet when I saw the protests in Europe, the truckers blocking the roads because of the high fuel costs, I began to think, well, it's, it's a, got a lot more to do with other elements involved other than just the demise of the dollar. Well, it's connected to the war, as I said. Uh, the prices have gone up recently in Europe, but nowhere near as much as they've gone up for the United States. Uh, a lot of these protests have been organized for uh, covert political reasons that uh, I'm not sure exactly what they are, but they, they're more than they seem. Uh, but again, the OPEC countries are saying we want to recoup uh, the dollar's losses that we've had on our foreign exchange reserves. And uh, Europe has not made that connection. They act as if somehow 
just the uh, the government can somehow stop taxing oil. Uh, it's not going to do that, and uh, all the strikes are doing is disrupting uh, uh, the, the local economies. Now, I believe that you have written that OPEC is cutting back uh, on its oil production. Is that true? There, uh, there have been mixed messages. Uh, some countries uh, wanted to cut back. Last week, Saudi Arabia said it was going to produce more, and the other uh, OPEC countries, Iran and Venezuela and others, said, wait a minute, uh, uh, if you uh, produce more when we're saying produce less, then uh, we're going to expel you from OPEC. Uh, at the very least. And the fact is that producing more crude oil is not going to have any effect at all on uh, the gasoline prices here because there's no refinery capacity. Every refinery in the world is now operating at full capacity. There's no extra shipping capacity. Uh, Shipping rates are going way up because uh, there's nothing to ship them in. So no matter how much more Saudi Arabia says it's going to produce, uh, there's no means of shipping it to the U.S. or uh, other countries, no means of refining it once it gets here. So uh, this is all basic uh, propaganda. The oil companies are very happy with all the situation. For them, uh, the the, uh, Cheney and Bush war in Iraq has been a win-win situation. Either, if they win the war, they get to grab all the oil for themselves and kick out the Russians and Chinese uh, that were beginning to develop the oil resources under Saddam. And if they lose the war, then there will be such a disruption in uh, oil supply that uh, prices will go up and create an umbrella for the uh, American producers to make super profits. So uh, they're very happy both ways, uh, and they like to blame foreigners because uh, they don't want to be blamed themselves. So now you've implied in your writing that the oil companies have consciously and on purpose not expanded their refinery capacity or the shipping capacity. Is that true? Yes, it's it's. True. It's not only on purpose. Uh, Nobody wants refineries, and environmental laws in many countries prevent refineries from being built if they pollute the water and air and are unsafe. The oil companies refuse to build safe uh, tankers. They say it costs more. They refuse to build refineries that don't pollute. They refuse to use modern technology. China, India, and other countries are the only countries that uh, are going to be using this technology. So essentially, the oil companies have gone on strike and said, what we're going to do is create a bottleneck. We're going to blame it on the environment because you're not going to let us dump oil all over your cities. You're not going to let us pollute the air and act uh, illegally. So it's all your fault that we have created a bottleneck between crude and uh, the gasoline you get. Remember, the, the oil doesn't go from a Saudi oil well into your car. It goes from a Saudi oil well into a very expensive refining and shipping operation. And if there's a bottleneck here, you're not going to get the gasoline in your car. Well, now, why would the U.S. oil companies be refusing to upgrade their facilities like you say they do? Because in... they've been able to increase, by, by not upgrading their facilities, they've increased the price of oil from $20 to $140 uh, per uh, barrel. They've been able to make uh, the largest profits they've ever made in history by doing it. All they have to do is not produce, and the demand goes way, way up. It's the easiest way to make money there is. It's a free lunch. And unlike Russia, America has no resource rent tax. So the companies essentially don't even have to pay a tax on their earnings. So American, well, so these oil companies are acting out of pure greed. There's no other level of anything. Yes. 
Wow. Um, I should say that I was formerly uh, the oil industry uh, specialist in balance of payments for Chase Manhattan. I've worked for Continental Oil. Uh, I have a long background in the oil industry. So then simply, what do you think that the price of gasoline represents? It's now at like $4.50. The equilibrium price is $16 a gallon. Now, what do you mean by that? That's the price that it's uh, moving towards and probably should be, will be within about three years. Within three years, you think that a gallon of gasoline is going to cost $16? The equi- the, if you make an equilibrium model, uh, given the fact that the dollar, the rate at which the dollar is going down uh, and the, the threatened war in Iran, uh, if you factor in all of these, that's the number that's being used in Wall Street. If Bush attacks Iran, the price will go immediately up to $8 a gallon, and from there probably to 12 this year. Well, then, what is the role of the U.S. dollar globally today? Will the U.S. be able to continue getting its free ride from foreign economies as the dollar tanks? As long as the eye can see, it will. Uh, There's no way of knowing uh, when the free ride will stop until other countries push back. And in order for the dollar not to get the free ride, uh, that means that other countries would have to band together and create an alternative currency to the dollar. Uh, So far, they haven't done it. Uh, The euro is not really an alternative currency. It's sort of a satellite currency to the dollar. Um, Sterling is undergoing weakness now because the economy has its own real estate crisis going. So foreign countries essentially will have to isolate the United States and go their own way. There's no sign of that happening yet. Uh, When countries do go their own way, such as Iran, Iraq, Venezuela, the United States threatens to go to war with them. Right. So at this moment, the rest of the world, it continues to be so tied in to the dollar and the U.S. economy that you don't see uh, a breakaway happening immediately. No, there's no way of forecasting when it will happen. If the United States does attack Iran, that would certainly catalyze the break. So how do you see, let's say then that there is no break with this U.S. globalized dollar economy uh, in the foreseeable future, in the near future, let's say. So how, how do you see this global economic situation progressing? How is it going to go in the near term? A slow crash. Uh, stocks will go down. Uh, more and more foreclosures. Uh, the real estate market is dead. Uh, Things will just get, uh, continue to get slowly worse and worse and worse. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, The New Road to Serfdom. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, after the Fed's rescue of the financial system by arranging for the purchase of Bear Stearns, The stock market rebounded for a few months, but now it's plunging again to its lowest level since March, below Uh 11,900. An analyst at Royal Bank of Scotland just issued a warning to his bank's clients that the S&P 500 will collapse by over 300 points to around 1,000 in the next few weeks, a plunge of close to 30%. Obviously, nerves are rattling again on Wall Street and in other financial centers. Do you see major financial instability in the near future as well? Let's put it this way. I talk to a lot of money managers uh, who have uh, 
a lot of their own money uh, to uh, invest. Every single one of them has all their money in short-term treasury bonds. No, none of them are in the market. Uh, so everybody is, is afraid right now. Uh, that this might happen. Uh, again, you can never tell exactly when the break will come. Uh, on paper, the banks today are in the position they were in in 1980. They have negative equity. Citibank uh, is talking about more rate downs uh, on its uh, junk mortgages. Almost all of the uh, banks uh, have a junk mortgage problem today that more is very much like the uh, third world debt problem they had after 1982. Uh, the question is, is the government going to keep letting uh, the banks uh, sell uh, hundreds of billions of dollars? Uh, there was, uh, the, the government bailed out Wall Street by $1 trillion uh, in April. Uh, while claiming that there's no money to pay Social Security because that, over the next 40 years, will run up to a, a trillion dollars. So here, the government says we can't give labor a uh, trillion dollars in 40 years, but we're going to give our constituents on Wall Street a trillion dollars just in April alone. Uh, so the government can keep just printing the money and printing the money to inflate stock and bond prices, uh, but it's not going to give money for actual employment, actual production, or investment. Uh, that is tangible capital uh, formation. So uh, it's a question of how long the, uh, the government can do this and how many foreigners are going to be willing to let their banks uh, go bankrupt one by one, such as uh, Germany's been letting its banks go bankrupt, and England has been nationalizing its bankrupt banks. So it sounds like other countries, the world is kind of stuck for the time being, and we're just going to see how fast or how slow this implodes. That's right. There's a naive view that somehow everything is going to be different uh, when the Democrats come into power. Uh, but the last time the Democrats were in power, they were to the right of the Republicans. Uh, Clinton basically was a right-wing Republican and uh, did uh, more uh, anti-labor uh, pro-wealth policies than uh, essentially the Republicans could have done, and that's basically what the Democratic Party is for. Uh, the, re the Republicans are viewed as the anti-labor party, so if you're going to double-cross labor, if you're going to uh, really hurt the economy, it has to be a Democrat that does it, uh, not a Republican. And so it looks to me like uh, Wall Street is all for the Democrats coming in, hoping that Obama will turn out to be another Clinton and will appoint uh, uh, Rubin, uh, who uh, sort of bankrupted uh, Russia, uh, or someone like Alan Greenspan, uh, who Clinton reappointed. Right. Well, it was Clinton uh, who got NAFTA passed, not Bush, and also got through the so-called uh, welfare reform. Right. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think the rumor is true that uh, Obama is going to appoint uh, Mark Rich as Secretary of the Treasury, but uh, people are talking that way uh, now that he's uh, appointed uh, Mr. Rubin as uh, one of his uh, advisors. Now, how likely is a major depression in the United States or worldwide? Certainly inevitable for the United States, not inevitable worldwide. All the other countries have to do is cut themselves loose from the dollar. In this country, America has no way of paying for its uh, trade deficit and no way of uh, paying for its uh, military spending abroad. So if something has to give, uh, America would prefer to impose a very deep depression uh, than give up one penny of military spending. 
So I expect a very sharp increase in uh, unemployment. Uh, people are talking that uh, real estate prices have another 30% uh, to fall at least, and that's only as far as the eye can see. Uh, and uh, large-scale foreclosures, bankruptcies, uh, while military spending will increase. Well, I know this is probably an impossible question to answer, but how likely, do you have any feeling as to whether or not uh, the U.S. government really would attack Iran? Uh, there's a lot of talk of it. When you had the uh, U.N. Uh, uh, specialist for atomic energy saying that uh, he'll resign if uh, America does that next week, and by America attacking Iran, uh, we're say- that includes Israel also, because uh, President Bush just got back uh, from meeting with uh, Israel, and the discussion uh, in the press is that uh, he was mainly discussing how uh, Israel could act as an American proxy uh, and attack Iran. So I suppose that eventuality is not out of question. Well, that's why the stock market's bad. That's why oil prices went up on Friday, because uh, they you don't need to be a speculator to force up prices. All you need to do is uh, read the paper and uh, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times uh, both said because of people's fear that uh, America will attack Iran, that would interrupt oil uh, supplies so much that uh, oil prices would soar, and that that is what is pushing oil up. Not speculation, the threat of America, America's saber-rattling about Iran. Well, now, in the near term, we've talked about how the economic situation looks pretty bad, particularly for the United States. Assuming all of this uh, happens as uh, – uh, assuming th- the future unfolds in the ways that we've been discussing, sort of a, a slow crash, let's say, what is the world going to look like in the next couple of years, do you think? It's very hard to see. Uh, a lot of it depends on the military situation. Uh, it looks like uh, there is a fragmenting of the world into regional blocks. One block will be Russia, China, and India – uh, and other Asian countries together. One block may be the Latin American bloc. Uh, Europe will go slowly downhill. Essentially, that uh, uh, the, in Washington, uh, not only Donald Rumsfeld, but others refer to it contemptuously as old Europe. Uh, uh, it's going to essentially be squeezed, and uh, North America uh, will essentially be squeezed. So it'll be re- uh, a regionalization. A regionalization. And then, of course, uh, it's going to look very differently if if the United States starts another war as opposed to just a sort of a slow economic... Uh, Oil prices would go very high up. That would mean really such a uh, crash of the stock, bond, and real estate markets uh, that there would be an unprecedented economic polarization between creditors and debtors, uh, uh, the whole world would become a grab bag. Exactly, and I guess it's hard to say exactly what that would look like. I mean, it could be massive homelessness, right? It could. Uh, the United States usually is the only country that is able to land on its feet uh, in a grab bag. So uh, it's always willing to uh, play that strategy. Uh, Europe always does very badly, uh, and we don't know what uh, the other countries will do. Dr. Hudson, describe what you mean by the new road to serfdom. How does it differ from the old road to serfdom? The old road to serfdom was written by essentially uh, neo-fascist writers uh, from the University of Chicago 
saying that uh, the road to serfdom was government protecting uh, people to uh, promote free markets. They said that uh, promoting free market is a road to serfdom because uh, of government planners. Uh, the new road to serfdom is when uh, the financial industry knocks the government out of the picture and centralizes planning in the hands of the banks, uh, as you've seen on Wall Street. Uh, when economic planning is centralized in the hands of Bear Stearns, Citibank, Chase Manhattan, Morgan Stanley, uh, their objective is to uh, get as many customers for the product they produce as possible. And the product they produce is debt. Uh, so the real road to serfdom is the road to debt peonage. And it was the same road to serfdom that uh, Rome followed and uh, every uh, country that's uh, fallen into serfdom has followed. Essentially, the wealthy people uh, will only provide uh, food, resources, education, essentials to people in exchange for credit, and the credit is extended up to the point where the interest charges absorb the entire economic surplus over and above basic living costs. Now, have you just described the new road to serfdom? Yes. In other words, the new road to serfdom is what Chicago school uh, Bush administration free market policies lead to. And what about the old road to serfdom? That was uh, Hayek's uh, book, uh, uh, who was Margaret Thatcher's hero. He wrote it in 1944, saying any government planning, any, prote- any consumer protection, any attempts to help people is going to lead to serfdom because that's fascism. Uh, and if you believe that, uh, then you're falling for the Chicago School propaganda. Well, it sounds like the new road to serfdom and the old road to serfdom are both pretty bad. Uh, not really, because the government, uh, the fact is that uh, progressive government planning, such as the United States had uh, between uh, the Civil War and World War II, wasn't bad at all. Uh, every uh, classical economist, every futurist writer of the 19th century expected governments to play uh, the role of the economic planner in society. The, ro- the role of government was to uh, regulate uh, fair markets, to create a system of equity where uh, they would uplift the poor, and enable everybody to become self-sustaining. So uh, essentially democratic governments are not the road to serfdom. An oligarchic government and a military government is the road to serfdom, and that's what we have today, uh, ruling under the uh, rhetoric of free markets, which actually is not free at all. So what you're terming the old road to serfdom then would simply be more uh, government planning. It would be a better system. I I was referring to uh, Hayek's uh, book of that title that was a bestseller uh, among uh, the fascist class. I see. Now, our discussion today has been pretty scary, to say the least. Do you feel, uh, and of course we'll have to discuss this in another show, but do you feel that there's a way out for the United States if they took the proper economic steps? Well, Essentially, the uh, path that was going on before World War I uh, was a very good path. Uh, that was sort of the progressive era. And if you look at the first Income Tax Act, for instance, that was passed in 1913, only, uh, only people who earned more than, in today's money, $102,000 a year even had to, to file a tax return. There was a cutoff point. If you didn't earn in today's money $102,000, you didn't have to pay any income tax, you didn't have to file a tax return. Uh, 
uh, capital gains were taxed the same rate as normal income because one of the richest men in the country, Andrew Mellon, was Secretary of the Treasury in the 1920s, and he said that it was unfair uh, to let rich people uh, pay a lower tax rate than uh, laborers did who had to work hard. All of this has been turned upside down today. Uh, The richer you are, the more income you make, uh, the higher bracket you're in, the less you have to pay, uh, the lower your tax rate. All of that can be returned to the direction the country was going uh, prior to World War I. But then, of course, that would depend upon uh, politicians, elected officials, uh, responding to the population rather than corrupt uh, corporate interests, right? That's true, and this doesn't usually happen except in times of severe economic crisis. And the crisis we're going into may be so severe that uh, people... Uh, will be willing to uh, back new politicians. It may be that uh, the Democratic Party will finally uh, be split and uh, uh, most of the Democratic politicians will join the Republicans where they belong and uh, a new party will uh, essentially come out. I don't see uh, much of a recovery until that occurs because the two parties are so similar uh, right now. So there is hope, but not a whole lot, huh? That's right. People would have to act in their self-interest, and uh, that's never happened. You mean in terms of a mass political movement, something like that? Yes, economic and political self-interest. Dr. Hudson, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been The New Road to Serfdom. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of The Myth of Aid and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Today's program focused on his newest book in progress, The Fictitious Economy, How Finance is Destroying Industrial Capitalism and Paving a New Road to Serfdom. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's www.michael-hudson.com. Today's program was produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under reconstruction and will be back up soon. These are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is... <laughs>
Are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you see 